Hello, and welcome to the American Civil War Podcast, Episode 51, The Battle of Ball's Bluff. The Price of War Grows, October 21st, 1861. War costs lives. War is death on a great scale. That is a sad reality that we should never forget. Even when discussing smaller battles or skirmishes, such as in our previous episode on Cheat Mountain, we should always remember and understand that they impose a real and terrible cost. Some sister's brother, some child's father, some father's son pays that cost. It is men who bear these costs almost exclusively. A handful of women really did serve quietly in the ranks, but the assumption of the day was for men to become soldiers. And they did and they died. Others came back scarred or changed. A word like casualty, so clinical, can distance us from the horrors of war. It is not only those who fell to slumber beneath the earth on the day. It is also those who leave something behind on the battlefield. An arm, a leg, maybe part of their face. In some cases it meant losing one's eyesight and living life in darkness. Sometimes it meant losing one's mind, for men went mad from the pressures of war. Some of these would go to military hospitals and get better, to a degree anyhow, but others never recovered. Weakened by injury, often made worse by time, or whatever rough roads led back to camp and safety, they just died. Others lingered until disease stole away their chances. In all cases, those bound for death's kingdom almost inevitably did so, if not alone, then still cut off from friends and family. For Union soldiers, the blood price paid in war of time often came very far from home. But even most Confederates fought far away from their families, and even if a family learned of a wounded soldier, they could rarely reach the wounded in time. That happened only occasionally, perhaps most often among Virginian Confederates, most of whom fought in the Virginia Theater and near a reasonably strong railroad network. Even the bonds of friendship seemed cut for the wounded. If a man didn't recover very quickly and return to his military unit, he would be moved to a rear hospital to regain strength or pass quietly. His comrades-in-arms would necessarily remain in the field. They could do little more than wait and listen for news. Families of the wounded, often a thousand miles distant, would frequently know that a battle might be coming. All the newspapers documented the movements of armies and the progress of campaigns. Quite often they would also receive a letter from their loved one written the day or night before a battle and filled with emotions. Heartache, worry, bravado, commitment, love, melancholy, or a mixture of all of these and more. Then the families could only wait and pray that they receive fresh mail after the battle. If not, they might soon see the other kind of letter, the one sent by the government, saying that a son, a brother, or a father has been ripped away forever. That is war, and even the noblest and most successful of conflicts must inevitably extract their toll. I rarely stop and speak directly to you as the audience, but I am writing this on June 18th, 2023. It is Father's Day. I hope your day went well enough, and if you've ever lost a father, a brother, or a son, then you have my condolences. We should always treasure what we have. Unfortunately, that brings us to today's topic, the Battle of Ball's Bluff. 
as with our last episode, it was not a true battle in the main sense of the word as in the Civil War, though certainly a bloodier affair than the skirmish up in the hills. Proportionately, however, it was one of the worst defeats in American history, as something like half or more of the Union force came back wounded or not at all. The genesis of the battle came, ironically, from General George McClellan. It is specifically ironic because he really, really did not want to fight such a battle. Not then, not where it eventually took place. Yet it came about more or less because of his reorganization and invigoration of the Army of the Potomac. In the wake of the defeat at Bull Run, General-in-Chief Winfield Scott immediately recommended to Lincoln that McClellan be called over from Western Virginia and take command over the Army. And whatever else he was... McClellan's discipline and energy during this period does him immense credit. The soldiers routed off the field at Bull Run, ran back to Washington, and collapsed into chaos. As often as not, they simply curled up on a porch and went to sleep, with no commanders to guide them and no camps to inhabit anyway. When daybreak came, they filled the saloons and hotel bars, which did not exactly help to restore order. McClellan swept this away promptly putting each man back in his place in the military ranks and establishing a tight guard over the city to keep soldiers from creating more mischief. To wear off that nervous energy, he put the men to tough drill. He also instilled a sense of pride and reignited courage and patriotism. It was not over, and McClellan proclaimed as much publicly, repeatedly, and loudly. Inside a month, sheltered behind the Potomac River, the army took on a new life. No longer mere amateurs, weeks of hard drilling had turned them into a fine-looking body. McClellan regularly held reviews of the soldiers, so the politicians in Washington could see the men march smartly, showing they grasped the essentials, at least, of military maneuver. At the same time, those ranks swelled. The army doubled in size, then doubled again. Within three months, McClellan's newly renamed Army of the Potomac had grown to nearly 120,000 souls. Meanwhile, across the river, the Confederate Army under Joe Johnston had pushed up very close to Washington. When Lincoln, or for that matter any of the capital's citizens, looked out across the river, they could see for themselves the dim outline of Confederate works, gloomily threatening in the distance. What McClellan did not realize is that Joe Johnston had fewer than 50,000 men under arms. Though possessing high morale, they had far less equipment and fewer supplies, which did not exactly help make up for the numerical inferiority. The many cannon bristling in the Confederate works looked quite imposing from afar, though. They just looked a bit less impressive up close, being made of wooden logs. In the meantime, Confederate cavalry under Turner Ashby captured Harper's Ferry in August of 1861. Though all the military equipment had long since been destroyed or captured by the Confederates, one of the main east-west rail lines still ran through the city. While the Confederacy held it, they blocked this crucial pipeline of information and shipping through Washington, both for military and civilian purposes. The city would change hands many times during the war, for more in 1861 alone. You may ask, quite reasonably, why this happened when McClellan had so many more soldiers and such an overwhelming advantage? Surely he could have spared a solid guard for Harper's Ferry 
given its role in protecting his flank. The answer to that question is both complicated and not terribly complimentary to McClellan. In short, with a fuller explanation to come in another episode, McClellan had an exceptionally narrow view of strategy. He wanted to more or less combine all the soldiers he could into one massive quantity and then roll over the Confederacy south from his position, crushing the army in front of him and then Richmond and every other city down to Charleston at least. He actually began this brand of thinking even during his time in western Virginia, where the logistics apparatus available could not possibly support such an effort. In a sense, being in command at Washington only fed the delusion, because with immense effort, the city could more or less sustain a huge army nearby. And yet, even with a truly massive army at his disposal, one of the largest assembled bodies of men in the history of warfare, he began to lose heart. And it was thus a motionless army. With the dawn of industrial warfare, the United States alone could keep this army in the field inactive. That had simply never been possible before. Napoleonic armies could eat as long as they could move. Meanwhile, permanent camps were limited to what the local area could support, and thus great armies often had to be divided over many regions. Now, industrial age offered something new. Huge armies could stay in the field, staring one another in the face for months on end. In any case, McClellan had trained and was training this great army, and now raised its confidence to new heights. And the Army of the Potomac, in this hour, might really have been the finest military assembled in the history of the world. And yet McClellan held it back. He was not certain, he said, that he could win. He kept going to the front lines to scout out the Confederate positions himself, and never seemed to like what he saw. The men and even officers in the ranks began to grow restless. They could see the enemy and wanted to fight. It was why they signed up, why they came down, and what they meant to do. Day by day by day, they trained and drilled and marched, but seemingly for no purpose. In the days after Bull Run, the northern newspapers reported, all quiet along the Potomac, which signaled that another night had come and gone and the capital was still safe from attack. As the weeks turned into months, the daily report began to take on a mocking aspect. Increasingly, it became clear that McClellan didn't want to attack for some reason. At a very basic expression, McClellan had persuaded himself that Joe Johnston had 150,000 men. This was, charitably, half-mad. At the very best, the Confederacy would have immense difficulty putting such an army together at all. Even had they done so, though, Richmond could not possibly supply such a body. The very largest armies the Confederacy ever actually put into a single field numbered only about half as many, and even then could barely support it. The ultimate source of this, it seems, is a problem of McClellan's psychology. Or perhaps we really need a priest or philosopher to uncover this angle of the human soul. Unable to admit weakness of the spirit, when McClellan felt fear, an absolutely natural reaction to his position of responsibility, he invented reasons for the fear to become reasonable. McClellan had never shown a lack of courage under fire from the enemy. But his spirit shook when faced with the enormous weight of ordering men into battle. He was neither the first to feel it, 
nor the last to rationalize it. At any rate, this standoff continued into autumn, when Joe Johnston suddenly pulled back a ways. From his perspective, this shortened his lines and left him a little bit less exposed to the absolutely overwhelming numbers on the other side of the Potomac. Among other things, however, his men left behind some of their outworks, and that included the lines visible from Washington. When federal troops cautiously, fearfully investigated those, they discovered that the huge guns menacing Washington looked a lot less intimidating by the light of day. Reporters seized upon the Quaker guns, which certainly knocked down McClellan's fame a hair. There would be more consequences for McClellan later, but not long thereafter, he received intelligence suggesting that Joe Johnson would pull his army back even farther and abandon a site upriver on the Potomac, near a town called Leesburg. This is about halfway to Harper's Ferry as the river goes, although it's a little bit farther along just by land miles. General McClellan ordered two forces to investigate this, one on the Virginia side of the river marching along the direct road from Washington, the other already nearby but on the Maryland side. First, to briefly dispose of it, the forces marching in Virginia got no closer than 10 miles from Leesburg before stopping. They accomplished nothing, and had no part in the blood, shame, or glory thereafter. The troops over in Maryland, however, happened to be under the command of Brigadier General Charles P. Stone. Now, Stone was actually quite important. Once the secession crisis hit, he happened to be in Washington. General-in-Chief Winfield Scott asked him to take over much of the work organizing a last-ditch defense against invasion by Confederates, at that moment believed to be imminent. Stone also handled security for Lincoln's inauguration. This will become significant later. But for the moment, just understand that he was acting fully under orders with complete good faith, although without support and in a somewhat awkward location. Now, Stone perhaps slightly exceeded orders by pushing across more firmly than McClellan intended. But in his defense, all he had was infantry, and there was not much point in only taking across a small company or something. Even a relatively small Confederate rearguard might be able to overwhelm a few men on foot. General Stone decided to split his force and cross in two parts. Southeast of Leesburg, a column would push across the river at Edwards Ferry, and meanwhile, another would cross northeast at Harrison's Island, a long and low island hugging the Virginia shoreline. That would let him get troops over in relative safety, and then get the men over to Virginia's side in a larger unit. He intended to then feel out the Confederate positions, or perhaps sweep from two sides and capture the town if they were huddled at Leesburg. But Stone could not know what would happen until he got his men up and started pushing inward. It is primarily the force that went up to Harrison's Island which concerns us today. Just opposite the island on the Virginia shore lay a steep ridge known as Bull's Bluff. This would not be completely impossible to attack, but it would complicate matters immensely by hiding the activity of any enemy up on the hundred-foot heights. It was not an easy place to climb, and harder still with a rifle in hand. However, the cliffs could also potentially conceal a Union amphibious action from any eyes if they weren't specifically looking at that one angle. In fact, the men crossing the river on the morning of October 21st 
were not the first Northerners on the scene, for another unit had crossed and taken up position the night before. Unfortunately, this would be the cause of the expedition's downfall. In any event, even as boats crossed and a few Confederate bullets whizzed down into the river, soldiers were already up on top of the bluff, exchanging a lively commerce of gunpowder. These men had gone up to probe the Confederate position, and had gone all the way near to Leesburg itself. But the Confederates on scene began to push back, driving them to retreat up near the bluff. They had, in fact, stirred up a hornet's nest much bigger than they realized, for it was none other than Colonel Nathan Shanks Evans, one of the hard-fighting Southerners who made his market bull run. Evans drank heavily, fought heartily, and generally made as many problems for his superiors as humanly possible. Still, if there was a battle, you wanted a man like that on your side and not against it. Coming up with the main Union force to take charge on the effort to dislodge Evans was Colonel Edward D. Baker. Now, this man had a most unusual road to becoming a military officer. Actually born in England, Baker's family emigrated to the United States, which seems to have been a really good career move for him. Where Abraham Lincoln struggled to get ahead, Ned Baker's career blossomed. He became a preacher and lawyer in Illinois, joined the state government, then achieved election as the state representative to Congress. Representative Baker not only supported the admission of Oregon, an unusual choice for a Whig, he raised and led a volunteer regiment in the Mexican-American War. Afterwards, he moved out west to build the Whig and eventually Republican parties, first in California and later Oregon. When he moved there, he immediately became senator in the latter state, which involved a public humiliation of Democratic lawmakers who attempted to dodge the vote in order to deny Baker a quorum, but got dragged to the floor for their trouble. Here, however, is the important point. Edward Baker was a personal friend of Abraham Lincoln. They had practiced law side by side for years, and they had both been young Whig lawyers in Springfield together. Baker, in fact, introduced Lincoln at the latter's presidential inauguration. Unusually, Baker volunteered to serve as an army officer despite also being an elected senator. But these were unusual times, and he was not entirely alone in that, and there was some historical precedent for it. So it was that he received a commission as a colonel, and that is why he was leading two regiments up at Ball's Bluff. Once he arrived there, he became quite enthusiastic about the prospect of battle, which was good insofar as it went, because his soldiers didn't much care for it. They were stuck with little cover except concealing brush. Unfortunately, the brush blinded them but gave no protection from Confederate skirmishers picking them off from higher ground in front. Meanwhile, they had no space to back up owing to that bluff, on the lip of which they found themselves precariously placed. To support the infantry, and to buy them that space, Baker managed to drag two guns up the bluff. He intended to blast the Confederates out of their little nest. Once he silenced them, of course, he would be able to get the men into order and begin advance. But some sloppy placement saw one of the guns recoil itself right off the cliff on the first shot. Then the other one went silent, as the gunners were cut down or driven off. This was obviously becoming a bad situation, and the casualties, though not huge, were mounting. Yet Colonel Baker still had a sizable numeric advantage, and he meant to stay and fight, not retreat. 
He strode down the lines, urging the men to take heart, stand firm, and not let fear control them. While doing so, a rebel bullet struck him in the head. He fell dead on the spot. The Union soldiers immediately lost heart, began to retreat, and let fear control them. This even went worse because a reinforcing regiment was actually climbing up the one available path up the bluff. As the soldiers began to retreat down, these two forces collided. Then the Confederates attacked in force, and within moments, it seemed all order was lost. Soldiers panicked. They ran down the path, and those who couldn't began to slide and leap down the bluff, crashing and rolling their way down, bloodied and bruised. Once they reached the bottom, they lunged towards the boats, kept busy ferrying the wounded. They crowded aboard until the overloaded boats capsized. Many swam across the river, or made their way over to Harrison's Island and spent a bleak night waiting for capture, which did not happen. Those huddled on shore, however, were not spared such a humiliation. The Confederates, in more or less good order and probably amused at the complete hash the Yanks had made of things, came down and took his prisoner anyone left. This debacle had taken from dawn to dusk and claimed the lives of 200 Union boys. Another 500 or so had been captured, and apparently a 100 men wound up listed as drowned and an equal number missing, but presumed dead. More humiliatingly, Colonel Shanks Evans hadn't even been present himself on the field, as his soldiers handled affairs so easily he didn't even arrive yet. This was not a battle. In fact, it wasn't even a skirmish. Not really. The entire affair had been mishandled, but... Neither Colonel Baker nor General Stone really deserved the blame. The entire sad affair began when an inexperienced captain led a small scouting party, made a mistake about what he was seeing in the gloom, and then successive bodies of troops just arrived on the scene. No one intended to fight there. It just happened. Many men made small mistakes, but in large part, it occurred just because of chance. To account for this, first, the Confederates were posted in the right position at Leesburg. Second, they were commanded by one of the best fighting men in the South. Third, that initial small Union patrol drifted a hair too close to town and got driven back onto the bluff. Fourth, when Colonel Baker came up the next morning, because of the previous skirmish he had to deploy on a knife edge of land under fire. Fifth, the terrain made it next to impossible for maneuver or easy withdrawal while limiting the effectiveness of Union return fire. Sixth, sudden loss of a commanding officer, and the wounding of several others, broke command and control, and so the already shaken morale, well, crumbled. Seventh, the Confederate attack occurred exactly at the right moment to spark a rout. But, although professional army officers would understand this, a mere recounting of the difficulties could not fix the situation. Among other things, the death of Colonel Baker could just not be quietly mourned. He was Lincoln's close personal friend and a sitting U.S. Senator. He was, as they say, rather visible. Indeed, when Lincoln received the news, he nearly collapsed, and those nearby saw the mighty President of the United States weep openly in grief. Many generals in this war would die and be hardly marked in the capital but everyone of substance there at least knew of Ned Baker, and many knew him personally as a friend. Well, there would be grief enough for the nation to share before the end of this war, 
and tears would stain the White House again more than once before it was all through. But it would be General Stone who felt the loss most keenly, though not quite for the reasons one might guess. Almost before the bodies had grown cold, Republicans in Congress, led by the fiery Ben Wade of Ohio, were calling for someone's head to roll. They had, just days before, urged in stronger and stronger terms for aggressive action by the Army of the Potomac. Now they shamelessly reversed course, on a dime, demanding a scapegoat for the failure at Ball's Bluff. They could hardly blame Baker, a senator, yes, but also a mere colonel in the military sense. And it's hard to blame dead war heroes. But General Stone, well, he made a very convenient target. There was a great deal of politics behind this. It was by no means a matter of justice or even stern government oversight. Now, to be absolutely fair here, Stone arguably exceeded his mandate by deploying too many men over near Leesburg. But he did so because he had no cavalry, nor did he have experienced scouts. In reality, Stone was just doing what he could to follow the orders from McClellan. But Ben Wade wanted a head on his wall, and he would have one regardless. In fact, his real target was not Stone at all, but the aforementioned General McClellan. Now, he couldn't get rid of General McClellan, nor at this stage did the radical or ironback faction of Republicans try. But Stone was less significant politically, and they could whip up some charges. They wanted to publicly disgrace him for other reasons, too, as he had proclaimed to his soldiers that they were not to rile up or free slaves. At the time, one might note, this was still official administration policy. General Stone wanted to avoid causing trouble, not merely on slavery matters. At a time when politics in Maryland felt a might touchy on the subject of northern soldiers stomping around, and, well, it was still a slave state. There was also a not terribly concealed message that Ben Wade was delivering to Lincoln in attacking Stone. Well, the radicals did pressure Stone, but not so much with formal charges as vague and secret allegations implying that he, Stone, did something nefarious but will never explain exactly what except to suggest that maybe possibly he tipped off the Confederates, but since we have no evidence at all, we won't specifically say that. General Stone would, in effect, be stripped of command on their account. Four months later, he was arrested and wound up held in a military prison on no actual charge. He would be released in August of 1862 and returned to active duty, where he served honorably in the Louisiana Theater of War. He briefly returned to take command of the Federal Fifth Corps in the Army of the Potomac, but requested to resign in 1864. That said, though he became a mere scapegoat for Republicans in Congress, he was also a patriot in his own right. He left the United States to travel and work in Egypt following the war, but when he returned, he returned to take charge as chief engineer of one of America's most iconic monuments, the Statue of Liberty. Stone died the year after he completed the work, and he is buried at West Point. His fellow in fame, Edward D. Baker, lies interred at San Francisco. So having said all of that, what was the meaning of Ball's Bluff? And I'm sorry to say that there was none. The men who died there died for nothing in the immediate sense. It was just another minor accident in the long road of the Civil War. If it had not taken place, nothing else need have changed. 
The death that war produces is not always meaningful or deep or heroic or glorious. It just happens. If that sounds a little bit sad to think of, well, that is ultimately the nature of war, that death can happen for no purpose. In any case, this has been the American Civil War Podcast. Thank you for listening, and I hope that you'll join us next time.